When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Microsoft Surface Pro 8 has the power of a laptop and the versatility of a tablet all in one. It has a touchscreen and a newly designed signature keyboard that could even store your Surface Pen. Show the world how you stand out with Surface Pro 8. Check it out at surface.com slash Pro 8. As a parent, no two days are ever the same. At Care.com, you can find trusted and flexible sitters to help manage your family's ever-changing schedule. Care.com can even help you out with housekeepers, dog walkers, senior caregivers, and more. So you can find care for all you love. And 100% of caregivers who use Care.com have been background checked with CareCheck, a key first step in hiring confidently. To get the help you need to make it all work, sign up now and find a great sitter at Care.com. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, and welcome to T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast, the most fun you'll ever listen to while you're folding your clothes. Now let's get this straight, this is not your average podcast. T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio is super fun, super crazy, it's pretty much an in-your-face conversation. That's the good thing about us, we don't do interviews, we do conversations. All of my guests, all of my co-hosts, we chill, we drink, we play games, we have the song of the week, we have the creative curse word of the week, as long as you're having fun as our guest. Speaking of guests, each week I'm going to go through my whole contact list and dive head first into the world of music, gaming, exotic cars, tech, strippers probably, doctors probably, probably strippers that are only stripping so they can pay for tuition to become a doctor. You never know. My wife is a certified bartender. She'll make you a drink while you're here. We'll get you drunk and make you play VR after. It's a lot going on, but that's what it's all about over here at T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast. See you soon, baby! Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the first of what I call the Division Capsule podcasts for Real GM Radio. That is a combination off-season review and season preview for one division, one five-team group at a time, and we're going to start with the Atlantic Division and a great pair of guests. These are typically two guest podcasts, everybody talking together, and it's Jared Weiss of The Athletic and Jared Dubin of 538 and many other outlets, both of whom have been on the show many times before. And in many ways, because I've had both of them on during the offseason, if you're interested in some of the directions we go in this, you can also hear them in other places. Like Weiss and I talked a lot about the Brad Stevens shift in an episode of Real GM Radio when that happened, and Dubin and I talked about the Knicks at a moment kind of in their, in the process of their offseason as well. But we go into all five teams in some real depth, and the moves they made, the moves they didn't make, where things are right now, where they're going, rookies, a lot of fun directions here. Hope you really enjoy it. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on. Which Thanks Jared? for having us. <laughs> both, both Jareds, all Jareds. I'm going to primarily be using last names on this because you both have the same first name. And we're talking in depth about the Atlantic Division and something both of you know very well. And we'll start with Mr. Dubin. 
Um, I like to begin these kind of capsule podcasts with a basic question. Um, and I'll clarify at the beginning that I mean this relative, like, more full-strength version, not like, oh, this team was super injured, so they'll, they're going to be better. But, like, of the five teams in this division, who do you think got better? Who do you think got worse? And are there any that you're unsure about? Yeah, so I think that Brooklyn got a little bit better. I think the Knicks got a little bit better in terms of their roster, whereas they might have the same or slightly worse record just for, like, defensive regression and injury regression reasons. Mm -hmm. And then I think Toronto got a little bit worse. I think Boston's roster is a little bit worse, but their record will almost definitely be better because they're, it would be almost impossible for them to have worse (laughs) injury or COVID luck. Um, And I am not sure about Philly yet because, well, the Ben Simmons trade hasn't happened yet. Mr. Weiss, any, um, I'm trying to think for, so yeah, I, I think actually for me that the Knicks personnel is, I think it's meaningfully better. I agree with you that their record might not be because of the, as you mentioned, the, the kind of twin factors of potential like shooting regression, opponent shooting regression, and also the health component of it. But I, I mean, cause they didn't, am I missing something or they, they didn't really lose a ton off of last year's team. I mean, Bullock will be there and yes, they lost Alfred Payton, but they also upgraded from Alfred Payton. Yeah, no, um, Bullock, I would say, is really the only high-level contributor from last year's team that won't be back. They're also getting, like, Mitchell Robinson, you would assume, will play more than he did last year just because he was, you know, he had a serious injury, came back and got hurt, I think, like, six games later, and then was out for essentially the rest of the year, and they replaced Peyton and Bullock with Kemba and Fournier, and then obviously they added their guys in the draft as well. Uh, so I, I think it's just straight up, it's a better roster specifically in the areas that they needed it to be better. Like they have more perimeter creation with Kemba and Fournier. Like that's something that they needed pretty desperately, which I think we saw in that series against the Hawks. But, you know, for regression reasons in terms of opponent shooting and then for just Kemba and Fournier are both minus defenders reasons, I do think their defense will, will likely be a little bit worse than it was last year when I think they finished third in defensive efficiency. I think it's, you know, more likely to be in the back half of the top 10 than in the top half of it. And Dubit, I was confused by this. If you're going to, if you're paying the same money between Burks and Bullock and you're signing Evan Fournier, why keep the offensive player instead of the defensive player who was doing well spotting up for three last year? I think that what happened in the Hawks series pretty much is why. They did, they wanted fewer guys where you could just hide, uh, you know, a Trey Young type on them defensively. They wanted everybody who was on the floor, essentially, you know, other than their big men, I guess, to be a live threat with the ball in his hands. And, and I think that... Burke certainly has much more off the bounce creation ability than Bullock does. And he has, he showed last year too, like he played some point guard for them when, when Rose and Peyton were both out. And I think that's important for them too, is just the ability to have a bunch of ball handlers. Like Kemba is an injury risk, obviously at this point. Rose is an injury risk at this point. Quickly is not necessarily a point guard. Like he's just a guard. I guess I'm not sure what we'll see from from McBride yet, the guy they drafted in the second round, who's sort of like a small combo guard, same way. So I think it was important for them to just have a bunch of options, ball handling wise, and that was why they brought Fournier in, and I think that's why they kept Burks over Bullock. 
So, Mr. Weiss, I was going to ask you about the Celtics. Cause, so what's interesting is that's why, why I try to frame this in terms of full strength is because clearly the Celtics will be – the expectation is that they'll have better health COVID as, as – as Jared put it, luck. But how do you feel just pure talent-wise, you know, losing Kemba, losing Fournier, who was only there part of the year, but losing those guys, getting Josh Richardson, getting Schroeder um, kind of back to sort of replace them? It's funny how they almost went the opposite direction, where it was really probably more about having defensive length and quality, I guess, across the board. And they made a little bit of a sacrifice and uh, ability to finish on the perimeter. Uh, I mean, Richardson and Schroeder, who they brought in, are guys that could definitely get downhill and attack to a degree, and they both have a bit of their off-the-bounce game. But I feel like most they're, they're mostly brought in to try to attack the basket and make an impact on the defensive end because those were the two things that they nobody could really do outside of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and then Kemba Walker and Marcus Smart when they had it going last year. So Boston definitely got deeper in that regard. And the Al Horford... Reentry is fascinating because Al Horford was very, very good in Boston just a couple of years ago, and we haven't really seen him play that well since then. He definitely looked good in, in, in moments in the kind of lost season in Oklahoma, and so I just, I just don't know what to expect out of him. But it could go anywhere from he's just like a good glue piece to he's once again playing at a borderline all-star level and kind of completely changes the way that they operate. How, how do you think they're going to use Horford, like kind of positionally? Just gave Robert Williams a big a big extension, which technically doesn't kick in until next year, but you know it's a it clarifies that he's a part of their future at least for the time being. Do you think that Horford is going to play primarily the five? He's going to play with Robert Williams. Like how 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 do you see the front court shaking out as of now? I expect him to play the four for the most part. I mean, that's generally what I was hearing. I know Horford has generally wanted to play the four most of his career when he could, and. As long as he's shooting the ball fine, he works as a four because he's so smart in the way that he moves the ball. Uh, he does he does take away a little bit about of the speed of how much you can move bodies in the ball around the perimeter, but he tends to make up with, for it with how smart he is with it. And Rob Williams last year got a lot better of playing out of that dunker spot down in the baseline to kind of like stay out of the way of guys attacking the rim. And if he continues to get better playing out of that area or even can start hitting some mid-range shots, which he's done on very rare occasions, then they could probably space the floor pretty well and then play very well with those two guys out there offensively. But it's like it's a ton of unknown at this point. I don't like this team. It, it, this team is kind of a crapshoot right now. Who's the backup center if Horford's playing the four? I think Horford's the backup center also first and foremost. And yeah, Cantor probably if necessary. Yeah, the Cantor will probably play 10 minutes a night. I think maybe how they make it work is Horford or Rob Williams comes out of the game relatively early. The other one is playing the five for a little while. Then they get sucked out and they just kind of keep rotating those guys through. Because Rob Williams is probably going to be on not like a minutes restriction, but he's not going to be playing 36 minutes a night. He's probably going to be playing in the high 20s, and Horford's probably going to be around the same range. I just hope Williams gets more time. Like, I just think he's really good. Um I wrote about this at one point last year, um, something that Bill James came up with um, in the context of baseball. Like if there's a pitcher who throws, you know, a complete game shutout with 15 strikeouts or whatever, it's he called it, I think, like signature significance or something like that, where there's only a certain group of players that can do something like that. So if a pitcher does that, it's a pretty good indicator that he's going to be a good starting pitcher. 
And Williams had this game where he had whatever it was, it was like, you know, 15 rebounds, 12 points and 10 assists or whatever. And there just are not very many centers that can do that. So I just think he's a, a player whose upside has not really been properly tapped into yet. So I'm hoping that he actually gets to run with the starting role and gets significant playing time, which really hasn't been the case for his first couple seasons. Like, I just don't think he's played enough. I, I think he's pretty much guaranteed to be a starter. I mean, they, he, they just look so much better when he's out there. It's just a matter of availability. But what's really funny is his he, he just signed that extension where he's getting on average 13 and a half a year, which shockingly does not have a team option at the end of it. That was really shocking to see. But Yeah, that surprises me. Uh, yeah, he... So it was very, it was way more divisive than I thought it would be. It was either people who thought it was a really great value for where he is at this point and where he probably can get to, or people who just like thought that he like you shouldn't be paying a non really good center more than the mid level. And I, I know as someone who's watched him play for years now, I, he's someone who honestly his impact doesn't, hasn't really showed up in the box score yet. He hasn't really had a lot of games where it's all about how much he's scoring and how many rebounds he's grabbing and all that kind of stuff. It's With him, it's the activity level, the insane hustle plays he makes, the passes that he makes that often aren't actually assists. Like Those are the plays that he makes that you can see why he would be worth way more than the, mid- the mid-level, but he still is somewhat erratic. The game still sometimes moves past him. But the improvement that he just made over the course of last season compared to where he was the year before, where he was still getting played off the floor all the time, was so drastic that you'd expect him to continue to progress pretty significantly, though he is 23 or 24, I forget which at this point. So it's not like he's like 22 years old yet. He's a little bit older. I mean, I think that he can be a pretty high-level starter, and he's getting, like, high-end bench money. Um, Yeah. Like, I think him and Noel got, you know, the same average annual value, and I, I would think Noel is going to come off the bench behind Robinson. Yeah, we'll, we'll see, I mean, how how the Knicks want to handle it. I mean, I, it's funny because I've been more of a Nerlens Noel believer over the last couple of years, and then he had, this really, he had this really good year, so I don't know how Tibbs wants to manage it. I mean, Robinson's situation is, is fascinating because he is a um, pending unrestricted free agent after the team option, but he is extension eligible. And now the Knicks, they've used up their cap space, so they can't do like a renegotiation extension, but they can still agree to an extension, I think probably sufficiently big. It'd actually be in very similar range to what Robert Williams just got. So yeah, how, how these teams manage it. And that ties in with something that I think is such a fascinating question with the Boston Celtics. And it's an unusual place for a team that's good to be, which is that Ime Udoka has seven, eight guys that I think can credibly be a part of his closing five. And some of it might be context dependent. Brad Stevens has done that in the past as well. But that can be challenging. Players sometimes chafe at that idea that they don't know if they're going to be doing it, especially if it's not like because they're playing well or they're playing badly. So it can be complicated, but I also think it can be a positive because, you know, there are nights that Dennis Schroeder is playing well, and there are nights that he's a good matchup, and there are nights that he is not. And so to have, as I would define it, and I'm interested in how you guys feel about this, like to me, Tatum and Brown are the only two guys that out of locked into the closing five. Those guys are incredible basketball players and also central to where the team is and where they're going. But outside of that, I mean, like, yeah, Smart's probably going to be out there a lot. Horford can be out there. Rob Williams. But it's, there are a lot of different options for Ime Udoka. It, it's funny because Stevens was very, I guess, malleable with how he wanted to close games out in the years where they were making the conference finals. And then last year, that really, really was a problem for them, probably because 
they had such a young roster. They didn't really fill out the depth of the roster with veterans that much. And the, and the spots where they did have veterans, the veterans weren't playing that well. So they had so many guys that were trying to, you know, trying to get used to suddenly having such changing roles and they really struggled with it. So you really see why they built the roster the way they did it was because they wanted to have guys that could handle that flexibility. I mean, we'll see how Dennis Schroeder feels if he's not closing out games every single night. That might get a little uh, explosive. And hey, that's why it's a one-year deal, right? But uh, I, I think that was the main impetus of the way that they tried to rebuild this roster was get guys that can handle their roles changing because I do expect Udoka is going to be that way. I agree, but I would also have smart closing pretty much every night. Oh, uh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, like... I think they, they need that other wing defender out there so they can switch pretty much everything if they want to. Um, and he obviously provides some degree of ball handling and some degree of shooting depending on the night. And I, I just think that's important for flexibility wise. Well, and, and he's a, he's a very clutch player. Like he's the guy that always loves to step up in those moments. So like you always want him out there for those. And, and something that I find fascinating about the Celtics is that like usually the idea is, okay, if you're going to switch, you're going to go smaller, but like, I thought Robert Williams has some capability there on switches too. And if you could switch when you're, I mean, he blocked a bunch of threes. He can move his feet. And I think he'll get better moving his feet too. I think the coaching staff is working with him on that. And so like Williams, it's, he has kind of weird length and I think he has more agility than the average big center. So like, I think that Udoka and the coaching staff can try out some, a little bit of different concepts, which is really important when you don't know who's going to start and close games because then you can kind of piece together what works. Yeah, I mean, Horford can switch a little bit too. Yeah, I, I, not, the last two years might have hurt that but, a little bit. Yeah, he's older and he can't do it as well as he used to, but it's not like he's just going to get destroyed anytime he has to switch. Right. Well, we could jump to, um, so typically the next section is, like, I'll, I'll ask each of you to pick a, a move, so that could be a, a trade, a signing, a draft pick that stood out to you, but I want to start with a move that didn't happen. And that is Ben Simmons still being a part of the Philadelphia 76ers. And it's always hard to talk about a trade that didn't happen. I mean, Nate and I have had this challenge with Bradley Beal over the last 11,000 years. But it's because you don't know typically what offers were on the table, what, you know, Daryl Morey turned down. But I thought this was the time for a Simmons trade. I mean, we don't know where the season is going to go, and it's always harder to make a trade of that magnitude in season. We did see it with James Harden, and Simmons isn't that level of player. But it's so much harder because rosters are in flux, and because Simmons is a hard player to fit. So if you are a team that wants to be competitive and you want to add Ben Simmons, but the other part of it that is such a huge wrinkle, and you and I have talked cap CBA with both of you gentlemen many times in the past, is that... The history of transactions of players of Simmons caliber is typically that you're trading a good player for either young guys, draft picks, or both, and that is exactly what the Sixers don't want. They want to trade Ben Simmons for a player of similar caliber, if not somebody who's superior. Lillard has been mentioned as an option before and various other things, and I think that might be part of why these negotiations are so challenging, is that... They want something that is typically not the return for a guy like Ben Simmons. And yeah. also, also ahead, they're, they're just sitting, waiting for like one of two players basically that could be available between Dame or Bradley Beal, like maybe a Pascal Siakam pipe dream or something like that. But they're in the situation where they're just kind of like waiting for very specific people to want out of their situation. Otherwise, they don't really have a package that makes sense for them to go for. So 
I, I don't really think Simmons' value can get that much lower than where it was coming off of all the stuff happening with the end of the playoffs. So it makes sense from that perspective not to sell low at this point and just kind of play it out. Yeah, I mean, I think that it makes sense that he hasn't been traded yet because of exactly the issue that Danny described. You typically get a certain type of package for a player like Simmons, and that package is not something that the Sixers are or really should be interested in at the moment, whereas the other teams that would be looking to trade for Simmons are going to want to give up, again, the the type of package that Philly should not be interested in and is not interested in, and... Like Jared said, they're only interested in essentially, you know, a group of maybe two players to move him for. And those guys at the moment are just not really available. So, like, I, I don't know what you're supposed to do there. Like, if you're Daryl, I don't think you trade Simmons and make your team worse. Like, you can't do that, especially with Embiid as your star player. Like, you just don't know because of his health issues in the past how – how long your window is going to stay open. And I don't think you can make a trade with a player of Simmons caliber that makes your team worse this year. So it makes sense to me to just hang on to him unless you get the kind of deal that you want to get that would make your team better. And one of the real complications here is that theoretically you could maybe try to create an offer where the Sixers like trade Ben Simmons for those, for the kind of young picks and stuff or whatever. And then you trade those to a team like Portland. But we also don't know exactly what those potential trade partners want. You know, like does it, let's say Washington decides to trade Bradley Beal. Are they going to go full rebuild? Are they going to want all these young guys? Are they interested? Are either of these potential trade partners interested in Simmons as being the kind of the next young star of their team? I mean, he's, flawed, but he's also incredibly talented, and maybe you think, okay, there are parts of this that don't work in Philly, but they could work with us, and I and I generally feel that way with Simmons. I think that some of his specific, I've described him before as like a, a masterpiece painting with a smudge in it, and that's points, all you can look at is the smudge, but in a different system, maybe you have a four-spacing five, and he can have the ball in his hands more, you can, you can make it work, but the challenge with Simmons is that he's such an unusual player strengths and weaknesses and I mean it seems like at, at there was a time where we're like oh these weaknesses they're going to correct with time but I mean you think about how much success he's had and how much attention those flaws have generated you would think that if he really wanted to fix them or if they were fixable maybe it would have happened by now I don't know for sure but you know you, you get into that sort of a search situation with Simmons as successful as he's been now for a few years so like, I mean, and maybe the shooting will come on a little bit, you, you know, you see, but that is a real challenge. Like, because if you, once you get into three-way deals and everything else, like it gets hard. And when it's a lot, in some ways, it's a lot easier to get the Drew Holiday, James Harden package than it is the, what do we want around Joel Embiid package? Mm-hmm. I also think this is something that you and Nate have talked about a bunch with Simmons is that, He's the kind of player where you could see teams saying, like, okay, we want him to be our next star player. We're going to build around him. The difficulty in that is that he's already on the second contract, which both has a high salary and also means that he's going to be an unrestricted free agent in just a few years. And because he's such an unusual player, you need time and resources to build around him in the right way. And if you're trading for him now when he's already on the big contract and just a few years away from potentially being like, I don't want to stay here, 
the window you have to be able to build around him as your next star isn't as big as it is as if he was still on his rookie deal. And because of his, not necessarily because of his, his skill set or shortcomings, it's just the combination of those things where he is already the high salary player rather than the guy on the rookie deal that you throw in with a high salary player as like, you're getting this, but we also have to give you a contract because that's what allows it to make the numbers work. The combination of those things I do, I do think makes it very difficult for teams that are, let's say, you know, Portland or Washington to use the examples of the players they pretty clearly want. It, it makes it much more difficult for them to be like, okay, we're going to take Simmons and we're going to build around him because you may only have three years or so. And because of his salary, you don't have as many resources to build around him as you might if he was, you know, in his second or third year in the league. I would say one, one flip side to that is by getting into the season, I think two things could work in Philadelphia's favor. First, Ben Simmons looks really good again, and the fresh taste in everyone's mind is how talented he is. It's more sellable to your fan base as an executive to be able to trade for him at that point. And then secondly, teams that didn't trade for him now because they wanted to try a different pathway – pathway doesn't work and they decide okay now we have to pivot back to Simmons so there might be some different teams coming back to the table to make a move for him just because they're ready to give up on what they're currently doing well and that ties in with um one of them to me one of the interesting subplots of the Atlantic Division offseason is what Toronto did and so there are kind of two components to this one is the Kyle Lowry signed in trade, so they got Goran Dragic and Preston Shua in that deal. And I think that's a strong return for getting a player in a sign-in trade. Um, I mean, it's kind of in some ways similar to what Philly got when they traded Jimmy Butler, which was they got Josh Richardson, who is now a Celtic. And I, I think that that's one part of it. But the other thing is, like, I thought, especially when Masai Ujiri re-upped with, this, with the Raptors, which I'm thrilled about, that – they would choose a, a more firm direction. And it might be that that's coming. It could be coming in a week. It could be coming in two months. It could be coming at the deadline or next year. But the idea that they're basically keeping this group together is not what I expected, at least for the time being. Well, they did choose a direction. It's to have a lineup of all six foot nine guys that don't shoot up the pick and roll. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was very interested in another move they made, too, just because after the lottery I, along with everyone else, sort of just penciled in that they were going to take Suggs with the fourth pick, mm-hmm. and they wound up taking Barnes. And, you know, besides the fact that he went to the worst school in the country, um, I do think it's interesting, like, what they envision happening with him, OG, and Siakam. Just, I'm not sure you can play all three of those guys together. Like, is Barnes going to be a center? How does that work? So I, I, I think a, another move is coming for them at some point, both because I don't think necessarily Dragic is long for for Toronto, and I think that I mean I, I think that they would probably much rather trade Siakam than OG. Um, and I think some sort of move is coming down the line with them. I don't know what it is. Like I trust Masai to make the right decision, whatever that is, more than I would trust almost any general manager in the, or whatever the hell his title is now uh, in the league. But I, I think that that pick combined with the the Lowry trade makes me think that there is something coming down the line for them at some point, whether that's during the off season or at the deadline or shortly into the season or whatever it is. Like the, the version of the team they have now is I do not think the version that's going to be the whole year. 
Well, and I, I think that's a, a logical way to, to interpret it. And for me, it's the, I have always been harping on the idea that you basically you draft best prospect available, irrespective of fit with your current team, except maybe in very specific special circumstances. And that would be, you know, like you have an unbelievable talent at a like center only, and you draft a center fourth overall or something like that. Like maybe in that sort of circumstance, you think about it. There's somebody else in the same tier, but. The idea about that of the Raptors guys overlapping, I think, is a fair one. And I think that there are kind of different theories here, and it's going to take time. And one of the challenges of analysis is that you you kind of sometimes want to fall into your traps. Like, I think back to Kyle Anderson going to the Spurs, and I'm like, I, I thought he was really talented, and oh, they'll use him a lot better. And he's had a good career. I mean, not what I I thought he was like a lottery-level talent, and he hasn't been quite that type of guy. And so there's some of it with Scotty Barnes. Where it's like, okay, the biggest thing, like, if, if – Scotty Barnes could shoot. If the only thing you changed, if the only thing you changed about him was he had a semi-reliable catch and shoot jump shot, I pull up one would be even better. But if it's catch and shoot one, like I would be much more positive about him as a prospect. And the team, other than maybe the Spurs, that has the best recent track record of getting limited shooters to shoot is the Raptors. So I think that's a theory of how it happened. Also, they could just think Scotty Barnes is one hell of a player. I mean, I thought the defensive film on him was great. And he, you know, has good judgment in terms of with the ball in his hands and everything else. So, like, there's a – I didn't have him above Suggs. I had Suggs pretty clearly above Scotty Barnes. But I, I'm i interested, and it's always hard when the player who has a flaw goes to the place that is the best – has the best reputation for fixing that flaw because you're like, oh, God, are they actually going to succeed? And it, it does feel on the surface that they're almost like drafting him into this concept of – we just want to have a bunch of big wings-ish that we can just switch across the board and kind of play this futuristic microball-style defensive approach. And then, at least with Siakam and Barnes, they're all guys that you generally can't attack and hopefully play make. So I, I do get it from that perspective. I just, as someone who has, like, Scotty Barnes has been my favorite prospect in this class since he was, like, a junior in high school— I still am kind of shocked that they took him over Jalen Suggs just because Suggs seems like the complete guard and someone that I feel like would fit really nice next to Van Fleet. But, I mean, they were the ones that were in the room with them during uh, pre-draft. So, I, you know, I'd assume they know what they're doing. Right. And they- I think for me it's more about the surprise just because it was so expected until like a couple of days before that they were going to be taking Suggs. And then I was like, huh, you know, and I just don't really know what to think because I thought I had a bead on what their plan was going to be post-Lowry. And then I now feel like I kind of don't. And I feel like we're trying to judge at this point, um, you know, two months or whatever it is before the season starts. And I don't think we have the full picture yet. I don't think we do either. And part of what makes the Raptors special in that respect is that they have a lot of players that I think would generate real interest were they available because they're on reasonable contracts that would be notable to good teams. I actually think Siakam is kind of the exception of that. He's paid a lot of money. He's an un- like like Simmons in certain ways. He's an unusual fit because he's great defensively, but you know, like he did more with the ball in his hands. The jump shot has been very hit or miss. But like if if Masai wanted to do a fire sale, Fred VanVleet twenty million a year. Yeah, I think I don't think it's like an unbelievable value, but I think teams would be thrilled about it. Trent, we'll see. I'm more positive on Gary Trent than most. Um, Dragic, I think that's it's a high contract, but a reasonable one. OG is one to me one of the better 
you know, non-rookie scale contracts in the league because he can do, he does what he does really well. I think he has some, some untapped potential. So if that's where, if that's where they want to go, they can do it. And there's no reason it has to be now. I just thought it would because that's usually the timing of, of when those sorts of, sorts of combined transactions occur. Um, there have been exceptions in the past, but it's getting there. And then what I, I cracked up when, um, Jared Weiss was talking about the, like, you know, Scotty Barnes and what they're trying to fit in. Cause I thought of Precious Echua's, uh, Achua's the same type of thing. Where it's like, okay, this is a guy we think can play. This is a guy who fits what we want to do. And we don't know exactly where this team is going, but we like him and we think he's good. And I think that's a worthwhile approach of just like identifying talent. They got him in a move when they were going to lose Kyle Lowry anyway. And they got a guy who maybe he's not. We'll see if he's starting caliber. I think he could be. Like, I think, I think he, uh, pressures could be a starting caliber center relatively soon. And if they want to run like more of a switchy system, he can work really well in that. And he has some interesting offensive skill set stuff. So I get the idea of Masai and Bobby Webster and that really, I mean, I think they're the best front office in the league saying, okay, let's, we don't know where we're going, but let's focus on players that make sense wherever we go. I also think an interesting contrast between, um, you know, we were talking about obviously the, the Simmons trade hasn't happened yet. And then the other teams in the division is so Philly, the only player on the team making double digit million dollars a year that's not making over $30 million a year is, um, is Danny Green. And he just resigned at $10 million a year. The Celtics have two of those guys with smart and Richardson, the Raptors have uh, Van Vliet, OG, Dragic, and Trent. And now the Knicks have a bunch of those guys. Um, Randall is still on one of those deals this year. Obviously, he's making more after that. But that now they have Fournier, Rose, Burks are all on those type of deals. And they even have, you know, a bunch of guys at $8, 9000000 million, Kemba, Barrett, and Noel. Those are the type of, like, mid-range salaries that you need to make – those type of star deals. And I think a big reason why one hasn't happened for Philly yet is they don't have those mid-range type of salaries. And the other teams in the division do. I think that contrast is interesting. I'll just say, I, I just figured out why the Raptors drafted Scotty Barnes. Because it's the third straight year where a team with red in their jersey at the fourth pick picked a big defensive wing. I think <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's just Masai showing respect to the NBA. That, that, the that's the new, that's the new tradition, the like the, the Hornets with the 11th pick. <laughs> yeah. And I should say, surprise pick, too, because it was DeAndre Hunter to the Hawks and then uh, Patrick Williams to the Bulls. So it just uh, – Masai was required to surprise us. And second consecutive year, it was a Florida State guy. I don't know what these teams are doing <laughs> taking these Florida State guys. Yeah, especially after a Miami guy did so well for the Nets before before everybody got hurt, or kind of that's while funny. everybody got hurt. Um, and, and let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about the Nets. I, I think that the, one of the interesting, well, so there are two things I want to talk about briefly with the Nets. One of them is Bruce Brown signing his qualifying offer rather than getting a longer term deal with the Nets. And then the other one is Brooklyn, despite their massive collective salary, using the taxpayer mid-level exception and using it to bring in Patty Mills on a one plus one. The yeah, patty. so it pays to have a dude who's, like, obscenely rich as your owner. Um, I don't think Joe Sy is going to care about paying the luxury tax. And, I mean, Patty Mills is just an absolutely perfect fit, like the one kind of guy that they didn't really have on the team last year. And for Bruce Brown, like, he played this very specific 
role um, for for them last year. I can't remember the name I came up for it with in the playoffs. It's going to make me so angry now. It was for the role that that him and Terrence Mann played. I'm going to have to look it up while I am um, while I'm talking here. But it's like it was some sort of like short center or something like that. I mean, I went with center point. He's the opposite of a point center. And, uh, oh, I called it the Biggie Smalls because it's a small nice. guy that plays a big role. Perfect. And obviously Bruce plays in Brooklyn. Uh, so playing that role, like it's it's such a specific context in which he was valuable. He's so much more valuable to the Nets than he is to another team. And like, I think he's more valuable than the four and a half million or whatever that he is getting on the qualifying offer. But like, was another team going to pay him more than that right now after he's only been in that role for this short period of time? I'm not sure. And I think if he does it again, he's more likely to get a bigger deal next offseason than he would have been this offseason. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the idea of a player being more valuable to one team than everybody else and the idea that if another team had made an offer sheet on Brown, was almost definitely going to get matched. So do you want to waste your time, waste your cap space on that? Maybe not. And the other one, actually, and I think this is big for the kind of the, let's call it the arc of the league. We've, we've only gotten Kevin Durant's extension so far, but I, it feels, I mean, there's pretty heavy speculation that Harden and Kyrie Irving are going to follow at some point in the near term. And it's this idea that we're get. I think we're getting to the point of more superstar stability. And part of that is the extension system being more fixed than it was before. I mean, what led to Kevin Durant going to the Warriors and some of LeBron's stuff was that you couldn't really extend. But the other part of it is, and this is a different element of agency, is players using their power to get to somewhere they want to be and then staying there, which, I mean, Kevin Durant was at the Warriors for three years and then he left and now he's going to be, looks like he's going to be a net longer than he was a Warrior, more power to him. And that's what Kawhi Leonard and Paul George did. And then they both signed long-term contracts. And that ties in with something that Jared Dubin talked about earlier, which is, Part of why maybe some of these teams are building those kind of contracts of that level is that it seems like, preliminarily, the path to getting a really good player now is not through clearing a bunch of cap space and trying to get them together because these guys aren't hitting free agency much anymore. Well, sure, we just saw Boston do that. I feel like New York is kind of doing that. It's uh, Cap space is kind of fool's gold at this point. And at least if you come away empty-handed with players that, or if you come away empty-handed on cap space, then you kind of have to just try to figure out who else to spend it on, and that's when you really get stuck in a situation you don't want to be, where you can get a even slightly above market rate extension or re-signing done or whatever with the player you like. You're, 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 you can just, you don't have to desperately go all in on specific players, hoping that they'll become available. So I, I think just most teams are trying to go less all or nothing, especially now that if you strike out and going all or nothing, you can't guarantee yourself the top three pick in the draft by tanking anymore. Yeah, Dan, the idea that the way to acquire stars now is via trade is something we had talked about on this podcast uh, in like the first week of free agency. And I, and I, the reason that I brought it up at the time was because I thought that the Knicks clearly think that. And I think that some other teams might think that way too. And based on, you know, the guys extending this summer, it's kind of seems like they might be right. 
Yeah, and it also, I mean, the the ripple effects of the summer of 2020, where we saw a couple teams hold on to flexibility for 21 because the possibility that Giannis was going to hit the market, and I mean, we're, you know, he, the the Bucks had had a disappointing couple of years, and I mean, they were very good, but like didn't make the conference finals and all that, and then. So the I would describe it that the the Raptors, the Heat, and the Mavs all chose to keep their powder more dry than they necessarily needed to. And I mean, Giannis is a great enough player that you can justify it. But when you think about how all of those teams have turned out since, so the the Raptors, you know, they didn't get Giannis. Now they're in this weird kind of realm between they're not really contenders, but they're also too good to be like a bottom feeder other than everyone getting hurt and playing in Tampa and everything else like that. Like season from hell, they could, they could get to the bottom, but other than that, they're not. The Heat ended up with Lowry and we'll see how that turns out for them. And then the Mavericks ended up in this weird place with Hardaway Jr. and they ended up trading Josh Richardson to somebody in this division. And so like, I think that part of what happened and the Knicks are a good proxy for this is Teams saw the downside of kind of waiting things out and the downside of, you know, trying to keep things because there were, there were talented players on the board in 2020. And if, let's say Dallas, if Dallas had decided to spend and made some commitments, whether that was trading for players who were under contract or signing their own players, I think they would be in a better place right now than, than they ended up being. And I mean, one example of that is trading for Spencer Dinwiddie, but there are numerous other ones over the last couple of years that these teams could have done and did not. Well, I think a, kind of a big part of it is that with the viability of sign-in trades now, where it, it makes almost everyone available via sign-in trade when uh, they become a free agent, that you just you don't even really need cap space to be a, play, a player in the free agent market a lot of the time. And players are probably going to come available for trade as much as they are going to actually have their contracts expire. So it just seems like you actually have more avenues to acquire a wider range of players by being able to put together a reasonable trade package than you do by having cap space. The sign-and-trade thing is big. Two times in three years, the Heat have gotten the best free agent to change teams despite not having any cap space. Like. Well, or, or not having sufficient cap space. And that's the other huge wrinkle here is that when players are making so much money, the cap is rising and everything else like that. Like, it's very different to keep 15 million open versus 40 million. And so I think that's a part of what we're seeing as well. And also, like, because the gap marginally, but the cap, the gap between the salary cap line and the luxury tax is getting bigger as the cap gets bigger. Then sometimes there are times because yeah you get hard capped if you acquire a player by sign trade but getting under the hard cap unless you're like the Nets or the Warriors or a couple of other teams actually isn't that bad so it's not the impediment that it used to be. Uh, any other moves that we um, from this division that you think are are really interesting? Um, the other one that I would think of, but Jared Weiss and I had a long conversation about this is the. The front, the off-court moves for the Celtics of Stevens moving into the front office and Ime Udoka moving in, but I think we already talked about that. So let's kind of put that to the side. Is there anything else with these five teams that that we want to talk about in this kind of section? Yeah, I mean, I think that the Kemba move for the Knicks is just really interesting. Yeah, like it, especially like we talked about this on your podcast too, like the sequencing of moves where at first it didn't really seem clear, like what the Knicks' plan was. And then because the Kemba move came out last, it became, you know, I think that it became much clearer later in the game than it probably was 
in terms of the way they made the moves, if that makes sense. I mean, this Kemba sequence, that was what I was going to say. Like, this Kemba sequence of events for him throughout the offseason is one of the most interesting ones we've seen during an actual offseason in a while. Uh, and it was just incredible that the Knicks got him for such a reasonable amount. And he it doesn't sound like he lost any money in the whole thing. Uh, so it worked out pretty damn well for him. And him and Derrick Rose in the same backcourt rotation is going to be very interesting. But I guess they have the defensive pieces around them to make it work. Or at least they have Tom Thibodeau there to make it work. But uh, Kemba, I think, is in a better situation than he was in Boston where he can take on a little bit more of the lead creation duty, which is something he didn't really have a lot of in this last season in Boston, which a big part of that was that he wasn't moving as well as he used to. He wasn't getting into his mid-range game the way he used to be able to. And he didn't really start to look great until the end of the season. Then he got that bone bruise, and so that derailed all of it. So, you know, who knows? Kemba Walker might average 23 points a game this year and look terrific, or he might average 16 points a game this year. And, hey, on the money he's getting paid, would still be pretty fine. Yeah, he would be. And I I think – one of the biggest winners in the entire NBA of the 2021 offseason is Julius Randle. And Randle, not only because he got that big extension, which is fantastic for him, but also because his role, yeah, I mean, his counting stats are probably going to go down because they added a lot of talented players. But we saw what the Knicks kind of needed from him in that first round of the playoffs. I thought that Nate McMillan and the Hawks did a really nice job strategically kind of understanding the Knicks' weaknesses offensively. And the way that Leon Rose in the front office adjusted to that was bringing in a bunch of guys who can, A, space the four, but B, create a little bit. And so now Randall doesn't have to do as much. And I think that's going to make life a lot better for him. Yeah, I mean, I wrote about it um, last season at when they were – before they went on their run to get to the four seed. Like, Randall essentially was their point guard for all intents and purposes – last year because of the lack uh the total lack of creativity that Alfred Payton brought to the table because nobody respected his shot. And Tibbs was basically just like, we don't have anybody who can create shots, so we're just gonna make our power forward our point guard. And that, you know, it worked for a while, but I think you see when you have only one real creator and it's a front court player, it's very difficult unless that guy is like Nikola Jokic to make that work. And you know, Randall did his whatever it was, you know, 60% Jokic impersonation for a lot of the regular season. And then it just sort of, he's not Jokic and that's nothing to be ashamed of. He's a very good player. And I do think it will be made so much easier for him just having other guys who can create for themselves and for others at the same time, which nobody else on the team was really able to do last year. And like Jared mentioned, Kemba's role is going to be better for him because last year and, and, and the previous year, like, he wasn't able to be the lead creator a lot of the times, and that the Knicks need him to be the lead creator. And the injury issues are still there, like they very much are with Rose, and they both need to have their minutes and games managed. And I think that despite what Tim said in Kemba's introductory press conference, I think that they're both going to be managed if they want to, you know, have them stay healthy uh, enough throughout the season to get to the playoffs if that's where they want to go. Um, and I think having both of them affords you the opportunity to manage one or the other. And I think that, you know, they, ha- they have a surprising amount of depth at the guard spots that I don't think they had necessarily last year. Um, you know, they have now, um, quickly obviously is, is still there and they brought in 
two guys in the draft and brought in Fournier to replace uh, Bullock, they have a bunch, and they brought Burks back, they have a bunch of guys who can actually act as the lead ball handler that will afford them, I think, the opportunity to manage Kemba and Rose, which they definitely need to do. And it'll just be nice to not see Julius Randle trying to create off of a fadeaway from the high post in the fourth quarter seven times in a row. Yeah. And the, and yeah, the next I mean, something the next... other than a brush screen for Randall, and then he tries to create at the elbow as a, a crunch time option will be a big change of pace for them. And, and to be able to do that without a huge sacrifice to your defense. Now, I think they'll you know they'll they'll lose something. We'll we'll see exactly how how that all shakes out. But like I mean, they still have the rim protection, which was such an important part of of what the Knicks did well last year. And they, you know, Evan Fournier can can defend. He got lit up in the net series, but congratulations, so did everyone else by the Brooklyn Nets when they were healthy. And so I, I think that they that was an impressive part of this to me is that they weren't it wasn't like they got all these crazy one way guys. And and yeah, I mean Kemba can be a little bit limited. I thought that the Raps hunted him a little bit two years ago. But not and, and if you do they have other options in case, you know, if if it's if Kemba can't be on the floor in a key moment like that, then okay, you go with somebody who's maybe a little more limited as creator, but you still can make it work. I think that the the Fournier, I think Fournier and Kemba can both be hunted on defense, and I think that that's going to wind up being an issue at some point um, because it's it's much different than last year when they didn't really have that many guys who could be hunted defensively, especially on the perimeter. And, and I do think it's somewhat easier to hunt a perimeter guy than to hunt a big man, just because teams can just choose to have their big man stay all the way back. Um, and, you know, despite the fact that the, both the Knicks and Sixers were not able to hunt Trey Young, I, th- I do think it's somewhat easier to hunt a perimeter guy. Yeah, a huge part of Boston's defensive struggles last year was uh, Kemba and Fournier just losing guys on cuts off the ball and just struggling with help stuff. Because both of them are – I mean, Fournier is actually pretty decent at keeping guys in front of him, although we can get overpowered, obviously, by a bigger wing. While Walker generally used to be a, a good pick and roll defender because he was really, he worked super hard to get over screens and that kind of stuff. Last year he wasn't moving at the same pace. So we'll see if that gets better this year, but they just had so many guys like cut by them back door confusion on switches, all that kind of stuff. So it'll be really interesting to see if that actually can get fixed with Thibodeau with Thibodeau. One, the off season section with two quick questions. We'll start with Mr. Weiss. Um, who do you think will be the best newcomer to his team in the Atlantic? Oh, interesting. Um, I, I think Patty Mills is the best addition relative to like what he, what you're expecting. Um, it, it's just like the perfect guy and kind of the missing piece for what Brooklyn were looking for. He's the you know has the the championship pedigree and the leadership pedigree that just he seems like the perfect guy to have him on the floor with them in crunch time. A huge upgrade over Tyler Johnson, with all due respect to what Tyler Johnson has continued to do in his career all these years later. So he's the one that I'm definitely the most excited about. I had uh, Kemba Barnes and Mills as the three that I think have the most potential to be that guy, obviously at different levels and for different reasons. Like Mills just gives the Nets something off the bench that they didn't have last year. Barnes, because of his defense and the way you can get creative up front for the Raptors, I think in in some ways that they couldn't really last year. They were very small on the perimeter when they had Lowry and, um, and Van Vliet and even Trent all together. Like Trent's not that big. Um, and I think that Barnes provides a different look there. And then like Kemba's a, pretty clearly the most talented, 
newcomer, and it's just a question of whether he's going to stay healthy or not. Uh, but either way, even if he's like 75% when he's on the court, he's just such a big upgrade over Alfred Payton that he can't help but be, you know, one of the better newcomers in the division unless he can't play. Oh, and I, I shouldn't forget, uh, Abby Horford, we obviously got into, but Dennis Schroeda is a really fascinating addition to Boston because Boston hasn't had a high level backup point guard in a long time. And if, you know, him at his best, I mean, he just gives them a, a depth of three level scoring and playmaking that they, that is like a huge departure from what they had last year. So he, he could make a huge impact if things go really well for them. He could. And and they're paying him, is he definitely going to come off the bench, by the way? I, I assume he's going to come off the bench, but I mean, th- they can start Richardson, they can start Horford, they can start him. I, there's so many different guys they can plug in there. Yeah, the the other part that I, it's a parallel between Boston and New York that I, I, I really appreciate about their offseasons, and, and Jared just got into this, is the 48 good minutes of creation of, of play at, you know, getting good shots and all that. Like, that's going to really raise their floor. And, you know, so some of those games against, mid-level teams where you maybe your best players aren't doing super well, but you still, like, you're not getting killed in the second unit minutes. You can still score. You could probably create, like, a five-point advantage on teams in that stretch. Like, that's going to make life a lot easier on them, and that could push some of these teams up in the up in the standings. And, I mean, we, we think about it, we'll get into the season preview part of it in a sec, but, like, though that stability, it's huge not only in terms of injuries, which, of course, are always going to happen at some point, but also in terms of, like, the ebbs and flows of a season. So, like, ah, oh, your guys are a little flat. Well, if, okay, if you have eight guys that can play, then somebody else can step up. There's a lower chance that you're going to have those absolute troughs. Oh, yeah. I mean, last year they would get on these streaks where they were starting to look really good and then just fall off a cliff. And what would happen would be – they would have a, a solid first quarter to a game against a team that was, I guess, at their level, even before, below their level. Second unit comes out, and it's three guys that aren't doing anything on offense but standing and watching with Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown and, like, a rookie Peyton Pritchard. And it was kind of a disaster. It's just like their star going ISO the entire time. The, they didn't even know what they were doing on offense. And so they just lost a ton of games where – you know, what, one of their big stars would end up scoring 40 that night, and they would mount what looked like a nice comeback in a competitive game, but it's because they were just completely giving it away with the second unit early in the game. So that probably won't happen so much this year, and that is where they can pick up a lot more wins in the regular season. I think the, the concept of 48 good minutes at one position is really interesting. Like, you need – we, Danny, we've talked about this before, where if you don't have good point guard play, it's almost – impossible for you to have a good offense in the NBA unless you have somebody like, you know, LeBron or Jokic or whatever it is that functions as your point guard while playing a different position. And I think both the Knicks and the Celtics weren't able to get that the last few years. And I think it's much more likely that they do now because of the upgrades that they made. And I think, you know, Toronto was able to get that because they have Lowry and Van Vliet. And now they're going to need with Van Vliet, either Dragic or Malachi Flynn or whoever it is to be that other guy that can give them those other minutes. And I think we saw with the difference between um, Toronto and Boston and even or so from Toronto and Boston to like the Knicks and Brooklyn last year at the center spot where Toronto was like, OK, we can manufacture Gasol Ibaka out of Baines and Boucher. And that didn't really work for them. And Boston tried to do it with Robert Williams and Tristan Thompson, and that didn't work out all that well for them. And then, you know, the Nets had 
Blake Griffin and Jeff Green and Bruce Brown and Nick Claxton and even DeAndre Jordan at certain points. And then the Knicks had first Mitchell Robinson and Nerlens Noel and then Nerlens Noel and Paris Gibson, and they were able to manufacture 48 good center minutes. So it's like if you don't have the guy being able to split the role between guys who are capable enough, like that's pretty important. They're just not putting bad players on the floor which is something we used to talk about in the early days of the Celtics before they got these star guys. Like one of their big things in, during the, like before uh, Tatum and Brown got there during the early Stevens era was they were able to exceed expectations just because they didn't put bad players on the floor. And I think at, you know, a position like center, it's easier to do that than it is at point guard. But, you know, getting now like smart and Schroeder or Kemba and Rose, like, it's just such a big difference from what they had in previous years where they're able to get good minutes out of guys at that spot. And like you need, you needed somebody good at the point spot at all times because you can, you can have a wing who just is going to fill the corners and just wait for a shot to come their way and you can get away with that. But if you just don't have a second player on the court that when the star is getting loaded up on and can't get anywhere, that can actually run the offense. It's like your offense isn't going to go anywhere. The, the last question of this section, uh, we'll start with Mr. We- with Mr. Weiss, is not the rookie you think is going to be best, and I think that's probably a pretty easy choice. And this one might be too, but it's just the rookie that you are most excited to see in the Atlantic Division. Uh, it's obviously a Toronto Raptor, and that's David Johnson. <laughs> it's uh, one of my favorite sleepers in the draft, who is just like this kind of combo guard, defensive menace, who has got has got like a. Uh, an off-the-bounce game on offense that I think can grow into something really nice, and he could be a really good rotation player, but he's almost like a better version of Chris Dunn in a lot of ways. And, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, Chris Dunn was a top-five pick, but um, he, he reminds me a lot of what Chris Dunn has become, but I think has more offensive capability. And he's just, he's just one of those, like, fun, exciting players to watch. And it'll be cool to see them have a plus-size defensive guard that can come in to probably supplement Fred Van Vliet and Gary Trent. Yeah, I would say, um, despite his pedigree, um, anytime you have a guy in the division who's a number four pick and then no other lottery picks in the division, the guy for me that you have to be most excited to see is Barnes. Yeah, and for me with Barnes, like, I, I was lower on him, but also saw the way it could work. And so it's going to be, this is just one step in the process. And I mean, it's the, we're not going to be saying Scotty Barnes is this, that, and the other for sure for the rest of his career based on this year. But I think he affects the arc of the franchise more than anybody else. I kind of want to be able to pick Aaron Neesmith, but he's not a rookie because I, I really <laughs> liked him in Summer League. Um, I thought that he, he stood out. And, you know, that's the other part of this for Boston that we didn't really discuss is the idea that I, I talked about how the, how many options Ime Udoka has in the rotation is that there is a distinct possibility, if not a probability, that one or one or more of their real young guys – I won't count Robert Williams for this because we kind of know what he is already – but that Romeo Langford or Neesmith or maybe Peyton Pritchard or Grant Williams can take on a larger role, that one of them puts even more heat on this and adds this like, oh, crap, now you have him to think about too. It's funny because I thought Neesmith was actually a little uh, disappointing – and how much he grew. Same thing with Romeo Langford. I didn't think that they made as big of a leap in summer league as I would have expected. I mean, Neesmith is still... Maybe it was really... that I saw Neesmith's best stretch. I saw when he had like 19, <laughs> yeah. po- 19 points in like a quarter. And I was like, yeah, oh my like, God, this guy's a monster. Yeah, we, we were like sitting next to each other for that game. Where we were. Going nuts. 
Yeah, I mean, like the, the potential's there. Like I, I, I had Newsmith ranked 14th on my board in that draft, and that's exactly where they got him. I thought it was the right pick, and you know, he's he's a sniper when he's shooting with confidence. It's going to take him a while to get there, uh, but he just he still doesn't look comfortable dribbling through traffic and not attacking attacking anything that he's going to close out. And there were some like really bad turnovers, especially in that Sacramento game in the final where they were facing like a, a pretty impressive defense. And so I think he just has a long way to go. Uh, but he he certainly tries to earn his spots. Like the, his defense is really incredible at times. He runs. He does. You know, crashes the glass really well. He does all the stuff he needs to do to earn minutes. But that's what's been interesting is like last year the Celtics didn't have enough veteran depth, relied too much on their young guys, and they sucked because of it, or they were underwhelming because of it. Now they're in a situation where they have like too much depth ahead of those young guys who maybe are more ready to take a bigger responsibility, but they may not be able to because there's too many good veteran players in front of them. Okay, so we could, I mean, we've already gotten into a lot of it, but we can, we can get into, I, I always separate it as like the season preview part of this, and we'll start with Mr. Dubin. This is a real challenge, I would say. Um, you can use whatever criteria you want. I, my general thought is regular season record, but you can use whatever you want, just say what it is. But rank these teams one to five. Yeah, I do think this is, it's tough in some ways, but not quite so tough in others. Like, I think it's pretty clear that obviously the Nets are several steps ahead of the other teams in the division. I think then after that, it's pretty clear that the Sixers are a step or two ahead of the other teams in the division. And then it just becomes a matter of like what you think is going to happen with the Knicks, Celtics, and Raptors. Like I think I'd probably have Boston and New York like a slight step ahead of Toronto, but I also wouldn't be surprised if like a lot of things that we saw – go wrong for the Raptors last year suddenly didn't go wrong this year and they were, you know, closer to what we expected of them last season than they actually were, just because obviously they'll be playing their games at home in Toronto this time. And um, you know, the the so much of the core is still there. Obviously Lowry is a big loss, but like, you know, I trust Nick Nurse, I trust Van Vliet, OG and, you know, Siakam to varying degrees, like so I think it's very clear there's a top team. I think it's very clear there's a second team. And then it gets more difficult for me. So you got number one, Brooklyn. Then number, like, five from there is Philadelphia. Number six, <laughs> New York. And I have New York as slightly above Boston just because I thought their their cohesiveness was just so much better last year. There's a continuity that you expect them to build off of that, and they've done a really nice job reshaping the roster to attack their strengths without compromising, or attack their weaknesses without compromising their strengths uh, too much. So I'm more excited about their potential this year than Boston's. But also, Boston, at least if Jalen Brown is relatively, you know, if he's at like 80% to start the season and gets to 100% by the all-star break, they have enough talent back on their roster. And if those if Tatum and Brown are really killing it, that they could you know, they could easily leapfrog New York and they could be knocking on the door of the top tier in the Eastern Conference, but not, I don't think they can pry that door open quite yet. Um, and then Toronto is probably back to being a fringe playoff team at this point, I would expect, depending on how ready Barnes is. Um, 
But it's like Brooklyn's in their own class, right? It's like I don't think anything even remotely compares to what Brooklyn did. I mean, they they did everything they did with like one and a half stars in every single game uh, this year. And well, yeah, like that, that's the crazy part. Like Brooklyn, Brooklyn's <laughs> cleaning the glass net rating last year wasn't really that much higher than Philly's. I mean, it was decimal, you know, it was three tenths of a, of a point per under possessions, but. Brooklyn did that without basically having their full complement. I mean, they didn't even have hard in the full season, but they, they were had guys out the entire time. They were the number one offense in the league, despite not having the, the reason we thought they would be the number one offense in the league. And so I, I end with Philly. I mean, there's there, the possibility of health regression. Maybe even they, I think they lost a little bit with, with George Hill not being there anymore. He, he, I think he, I think he helped them somewhat, you know, not an insane amount last year. And, and also the idea that um, the Nets, to me, because of that diversity of star talent, they're less dependent on the health of one guy. And especially when that one guy is Joel Embiid, who has plenty of history, who's coming off of a torn meniscus. Thankfully, he didn't have surgery. But so, yeah, I would say Brooklyn is in a class by themselves, whether we're talking regular season success or overall talent. I mean, I think I think there is a distinct possibility that we've been living in Brooklyn's world for the last year and a half or last year or so, but we haven't really known it yet because they got hurt in the playoffs and, and everything else. Um, I think that's a possibility. I'm, I have Celtics over the Knicks, uh, partially because I think that the, I think that their roster fits together a little bit more smoothly. Like they can, the, the, they can fit the pieces. And also like, we haven't talked about this as much as we could have internal improvement. Like, I mean, the idea that, Tatum and Brown, if Brown, we'll see how healthy he is. Like, I think there's more room for them to grow off of where they were. And I think Horford will unlock things in sort of a similar way in, to, in, to an extent to what the Knicks are going to do. But I think that that's really close. We're splitting hairs there. With the Raps, I think that on current talent level, they're really close to the other two teams, but there are two things that are weighing them down. One, like, I had this brief moment where I'm like, oh my god, the Raptors, like, they were 19th in defense last year. Nick Nurse is a really good defensive coach and all this, and I do think they'll be better than that. But they didn't really fix the center rotation problems. Like, that that, that isn't something, I mean, they added Precious, but I don't know that, like, you know, and, and Baines was a disaster last year. Unfortunately, now he has this new injury. So I think they'll be better there, but I don't think it's, like, solved. And the idea that the Raptors, unlike the other two teams that they're competing with, they have potentially some downward pressure. Maybe they get a really good offer for Van Vliet, or maybe a Siakam trade happens, or they really want to play Scotty Barnes because he's their he's their new talent. They think he's going to be the real deal, but he's not there yet. And so there's a there's a way for them that this season is a success, but they aren't as competitive. Whereas the other two teams, we know they're going pedal to the metal. I think that makes sense. Now we get another juicy one. Um, we'll start with with Jared Weiss. Um, how many teams from this division make the playoffs? Hmm. Um, between four and five, I, I guess I'll go with four. Like to, I, I feel like, yeah, because yeah, I go with four. Um, I'm actually going to go with three. Um, I think the default expectation is probably four, but when you look at it, I think there are two teams that are definitely make it. Bar- uh, Definitely making it barring some sort of catastrophe. And then when you look at sort of the next tier of teams in the East, you gotta figure there's like, I don't know, seven, eight teams for four spots, which means half aren't gonna make it. So I'm just gonna say one of the Knicks or Celtics isn't gonna make it. 
Yeah, that's that's totally fair. I mean, so my thought had been there are five teams in this division that are playoff quality, but you're very mm-hmm. rarely a you're not going to get five in, and that's the the idea basically. Like you think of variance, so if you throw you throw a stuff, bunch of stuff against the wall, some teams are going to get hurt, some teams are going to get everything else. So my in- instinct was four, but I do think Dubin's point about like kind of when they're on the margins, it's more like like there there are only so many different spots. So like, I mean. Like the Hawks are, I think the Hawks are a more reliable playoff team than some of these other ones because they were hurt a lot last year and they were still, you know, they were the five seed technically. Um, the Heat are going to be better. I mean, they made the playoffs last year, but they got knocked out summarily. So like, I think the the Southwest has, Southeast, sorry, has a couple of different teams in that mix. And the other kind of weird part of all this is the East has so many teams that are trying to make the playoffs. And I think that's a real a real potential challenge where, you know, like the Bulls and the Pacers and I mean the how many teams in the East aren't trying to make the playoffs this year? Probably like the Pistons and the Magic. Cleveland. Is that it? Cleveland is Oh and Cleveland. Yeah, playoffs, you're right. So off, yeah. I think Cleveland thinks it's trying to make the playoffs. <laughs> <laughs> so it let's the year LeBron left. Yeah, so let's say it's twelve so let's say it's twelve and apologies to the three teams I'm gonna say that and let's not even say that they're not trying. They're just not good enough. Let's put it that way. They're not playoff caliber. That's really tough because that means that means that if you are a good team that also deals with injuries, that you're not going to get you're not going to get as much latitude. Um, so it's going to be harder. And I mean, you they could beset anybody you know at any time, but it, it is going to be a real challenge. Yeah, and I mean, it'll be interesting to see how uh, if Indiana is healthy, how much did they climb back up towards the middle or I guess like the bottom half of the playoff bracket, and then. Charlotte should continue to improve from last year. I mean, LaBello yep. was pretty impactful as a rookie, and I'd imagine he's going to get a lot better in his second season. Uh, and then, like, Chicago at 31 wins last year. Did they make enough changes to move up, like, seven wins or something like that? It's hmm. tough. Like, that's why I said, like, if there's, you know, seven or eight teams for four spots or whatever, like, if you figure uh, Milwaukee, Brooklyn, Philly, and Atlanta are probably the – as close to definites as you're going to get. There's a lot of teams for four spots. Half of them aren't going to make it, you know? Yeah, that that that's really fair. Um, let's. So the last question I had for you guys, and of course if there's other things you want to talk about, I'll do it. we'll start with your advice, is we already talked about rookies you're most excited to see. Uh, what players in, the, in this division do you think will break out? And breakout can be defined a lot of ways. It can be players that reach a different level of success or prominence than they did before. Um, but like, who do, who do you think is prime for that kind of a jump? I'm excited to see if OG Ananobi is going to turn into a more, you know, more I guess dynamic offensive player. And as the Raptors kind of take a step back towards being more of a playoff contending team, is he going to turn into kind of the best outcome of who we could be? So that's I think that's the guy that I'm most curious to see if he can make that leap to near All Star. And then I'm really glad that Bruce Brown stayed in Brooklyn, and I'm really excited to see if the the kind of you know, the Biggie Smalls as they use them in the playoffs, if they could do that throughout the regular season. I have a bunch of guys, so I've tried to pick one from every team. Um, OG was mine for the Raptors. Then I have Nick Claxton mm-hmm. for Brooklyn. I oh, think nice. that he's going to give a different center look than they were able to use, especially with Jeff Green gone now. They need like another guy beyond Blake that's like an actual sort of big guy. So I think that he's uh, primed for a bigger role than he had last year. And I like like being able to switch still at his size and also protect the rim, um, I think is big. Um, and, I, you know, I mentioned Time Lord 
earlier. I think he's going to be a big factor for them. I think Pritchard will be better this year. I don't know necessarily a breakout because they're going to use Smart at the point, and they still have uh, – they signed Schroeder, who is obviously going to play uh, a pretty big role. And then I don't want to spoil too much of something that I'm writing, but I'm also going to say uh, Tyrese Maxey and Emmanuel Quickly. The last two you said were the two that I was going to say because the biggest jump in the NBA is from your first year to your second year. And I don't know exactly what role those two guys are going to have within the rotation, Maxi. But I think both of them, if they play well enough, there is an opportunity for them. And quickly, I you know, the, the Knicks gave him the ball more, and that's exactly what they should have done in summer league. You know, give him that opportunity. I think he's going to be more off-ball with the Knicks, and I think that's great for quickly. I think he's, he, I loved him last year. I mean, I got on, I got in some hot water at one point with Knicks fans because I was criticizing Tibbs for not playing quickly enough. It wasn't me because also they had Elford Payton and I have my own things there. But I, I think that there's a, there's a real nice spot for him and the more talent they've added to the rotation, I think the better it is for quickly. I'd love to say the same with Obi Toppin and he has looked a little bit better, but I still don't know exactly where he fits in. And then with Maxi, he, you know, one of those guys who looked too good for summer league, one of those guys who, who can, he can take on more. I don't know, again, like it's hard with the Sixers to kind of fit everything in and like where is he, where is he going to go in the rotation? But I also think that if you can play, it can work, especially if the Sixers are in this weird, holding pattern with Ben Simmons, where everybody kind of thinks they're going to move him at some point, but they don't know exactly when, well, then that's going to create opportunities for other guys to say, well, I I don't know where we're going, but I deserve a spot in this as well. Uh, I I just don't want to say too much because it's something that I'm writing about. (laughs) Sure. Um, Anything else, I mean, with this division that you guys think is worth discussing? I think we've covered a lot of it. It's a lot of turnover, you know. Um, I would say four of these teams made some pretty significant changes. Um, so it's a much different division than it was last year. And the, the fifth team might be making some pretty sim- – or wait, sorry, three teams made some pretty significant changes, and there might be a fourth depending on what happens with Simmons. And I'm curious, would you guys rather see Philly try to figure it out with Simmons one more year or trade him for a non-superstar and just see if Philly can actually get better after moving him? I wouldn't trade him for a non-superstar. Like, I think Maury is handling it the right way. Like, I don't, I don't, I just don't think you can take a step back in one of what may be Embiid's limited prime years. Well, so for me, the bigger issue is if they don't get a number two on a title team in this deal, I don't know how in the hell they do it because they don't have those, min, those salaries. They don't have a ton in the way of like draft resources. So unless like Maxi breaks out to the point where He's a great player, but he's not the right fit for them, and so somebody else will give you that other guy. Like, other than that possibility, like, there isn't another way to do it. And so I think that, and when, and with, with MB, we don't know how long the window is. I think the window is, you know, like, it's open now, but we don't know how long it's going to be open. So I, I, I do think that trading Simmons is like the best thing for the franchise, but I'm in agreement. I think we're, the three of us are kind of in the same boat where, you're limiting it yourself unless, let's say, this would be the one exception, and I don't think this trade is out there based on what I've heard and what I know, that 
you could get a resource, like, let's say that's, you know, kind of like that, I, we call it, Nate and I called it the Lake Kings pick, where it was like it was going to be either the, it was going to be either the Lakers pick or it was going to eventually be a Sacramento Kings pick, where it's like, okay, this is a resource that has value now, and you can almost immediately flip that into a third thing. But those, I don't think that trades out there. Like, I don't think there's a team that you have a pick that you think is almost definitely going to be top 10 or a player who is a top five pick talent already in the league that they want to give up for Ben Simmons. Like, if that was out there, maybe you can do the kind of two-piece, like the two-step deal, but I don't think that's there. I don't think it is either. Um, I also think something else that I just want to sort of circle around to because you mentioned it with Philly, like their title window is certainly open now. We don't know how long it's going to stay open. I think we'd all agree that Brooklyn has is first among these teams in terms of like the combination of how wide their window is open and how long it should last. I'm curious who you think who you guys think is next. Phillies is obviously open the widest at the moment among the four other teams, and the other three I don't know who's is if any of them is open right now, and I also don't know if and when they put themselves in position to get open, how long it will stay open. Just because we don't know, they they need changes to their team to make it open in the first place, and we don't know what that's going to do to their resources in terms of being able to keep it open. I, mean, I could definitely see Atlanta and Boston just because their their best players are so young, basically just kind of continuing to knock on that door for a couple of years, and then when the window starts to close for the others, that's when they're prying theirs open and stays open for a while. Um, but I think both of those teams would like to make a, a huge leap at another big star if they can. And Boston's been pretty obvious in how they're trying to go about it. Um, but I mean, Brooklyn's window should stay open for long enough that making that huge swing right now, you're still having to go up against them at their, at the top of their game, right? Yeah, the Nets, uh, and, and a part of it also for the Nets could be that the other teams that have that have stars are a little bit decentralized. So I mean, yeah, the Lakers have have LeBron and they have Anthony Davis, and that could be good enough to really get them in the mix. Um, but like Steph Curry, I don't think the Warriors are quite at the same. I don't think they're at the same level as the Nets. Uh, the Clippers, we're just going to have to see. I mean, Kawhi's partially torn ACL really puts a puts a crimp in that. We'll see what happens with the Nuggets. Like, I mean, I, my instinct is that for for the couple of years. But so if we want to go by basketball reference ages. This is going to be age 33 for KD, age 32 for Harden, and age 29 for Kyrie. So I think Durant's game is going to age really well relative to other star players because he's tall and he can shoot. But I'm thinking probably another two to three years near this level, depending on what move Sean Marks makes at the margins. And... That, you know, like, I hope, I hope it expect that they'll get at least one during that time if, you know, healthy and all that. I mean, I think one that was for the taking for them was this year, except that Harden got hurt Im- immediately in that second round series and then Kyrie got hurt too. But I think that they might get a little bit longer because, like, even though it's only one, like, it's only half of it, like, LeBron is, is older than these guys, and so if the Lakers age out, it's gonna be harder for them to replace him in some ways. So it's gonna be really interesting. And that's a, it's a huge question, but it's a really interesting one. I think, like, just in general, title contention windows don't stay open as long as we think they do. Even for the teams that seem like they're gonna take over the NBA forever. Like, I wrote something about this a few years ago. Uh, I can't remember, it was two years ago, three years ago, whatever it was, like, at max, you're talking about, like, five years at the absolute most in general. Most of the time, 
two or three. Like, so, you know, the, the Nets, they, they need to win, like, right now, you know? They absolutely do. Well, thank you guys both so much for taking the time to come on. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks, for Thanks fellas. Thanks again to both Jared Weiss and Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can check out Jared Weiss at The Athletic. You can also follow him at Jared Weiss NBA, J-A-R-E-D-W-E-I-S-S-N-B-A. And you can also check out Jared Dubin. You can, he was teasing a piece that he's working on. I actually know a little bit about it because I was with him when he was starting it. Um, that should be really good. I don't know where it's going to be published, um, but I'm really excited about it. And you can follow him at J-A-D-U-B-I-N and the number five. Love having them on. And generally speaking, this is what the Division Capsule podcasts are like. It's, you know, riffing and talking about these teams and we'll be two guests. And the timing on these might be a little bit different. Um, I'm going to try to have it be one a week, the standard for Real GM Radio. Um, but with guest availability, sometimes, especially because this is a time that some people are taking vacations, sometimes it might be a little bit weird. But we're going to do – I'm going to do all six during the off season. And we'll see exactly where it um, where it plays out. But I'm really excited to have them on and to, to have everything. And so I'm working through the timing of all that. This is yet another compressed off season, so a little bit challenging. But I think it should be totally fine. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player you're choosing. Great if it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever can tell people word of mouth. But the biggest thing, honestly, that you can do is subscribe and download every episode. Again, whatever podcast player you want, that it'll pop into your player whenever you want to do it. Really does help other our numbers and everything else. It, it can be really useful. So appreciate that. You can also check out my other work, Dunked On, Dunked On Prime, still going strong. We're roughly two episodes a week, um, but we're they're long ones. We did over two hours in the episode that uh, just got released. I think, I think that one might have a public element as well. We might be doing a different one for that. Um, so they're sizable. They're just fewer and further between. Nate's on vacation now, um, which is great. And written work at The Athletic, of course. Um, probably going to have some stuff in the works right now. I'm, um, I've tried to take a couple of days to tone it down a little bit, but have that. And, of course, Real GM Radio will still be an episode a week, so we can can roll through that. And there's a lot of ground to cover, lots of really interesting moves uh, to, to go through. And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. And I will try to respond. I'm admittedly not the greatest at that, but that is my intent. So that is enough for now. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.